Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Genesis 6, 9 through 8, 19. And if you have uh, the bulletin, I encourage you to take it out. The notes we found therein and uh, aid you in following along. You're going to see that the front side of your notes are already completed. Uh, and that's because we were attempting to finish this entire sermon last week. And it was a little bit of aggressive stance on my part to try to get through all of this. Uh, but our goal was to try to navigate through Noah and the flood as we've been just going through verse by verse and through the book of Genesis. And I hope you found it's been helpful, it's been uh, challenging and rewarding as we've been walking through this uh, book and these passages. And so as we walk through this, I encourage you to take those notes and follow along with us and uh, 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 with the intent, as we oftentimes say, uh, that as whatever we receive as far as from God's truth, we want to reproduce in the lives of other people. And so that's our mandate, that we would make disciples, to teach them to observe all that God commanded us. And so as we're walking through this, these passages are helpful for us to see God's character, his nature, uh, and our character and nature in light of his righteousness. And so uh, these passages are helpful. And I want us to see, as we walk through these, many times pointing out aspects of things that we've heard that were uh, needing some correction, needing some help, uh, as we walked through last week, we many times will see Noah's Ark on a, on a cute little um, um, uh, children's room or something along those lines. And you've got this tiny little boat and you've got these giraffes sticking out the top and a big elephant with his tusks or poking his head out the window and, and these kind of imagery. And even though that's cute, uh, it could be the farthest thing from the truth as far as how the design of the Ark was and, and what it begins to look like. And even the point of the whole passage uh, that ultimately that was God's judgment upon people, uh, and that ultimately this was God pouring out his wrath against sin and sinners alike. And in the same vein, at the same time, God's mercy and compassion was being displayed on the planet. Uh, and so I want us to be able to try to see this, and we walk through this to be able to help us to navigate through that. And with that, just a couple uh, comments just maybe help prepare us, set our hearts in the right place. Um, Isaiah warns that, they would draw near to him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. And that can be a dangerous thing for, for us as well. Um, we can sit and sing three songs, four songs, all about the glory and the majesty of God. And yet our minds will be thinking about something else and our, our hearts will be somewhere else. Or we're worried or troubled about things rather than focusing on the, the Lord Jesus Christ and his goodness and his grace. As Tim encouraged us to do um, before the offering. And so I want us to guard against that. And so with that, I want us to have the same mindset, especially in light of a fifth Sunday luncheon. And if you came in after that announcement was made on the fifth Sunday, uh, happens four times a year. We have a, uh, dinner on the grounds. If we all have an opportunity just to be able to hang out and, uh, spend time with one together, one another. And so if you're here, uh, even if you're a visitor with us, we encourage you to stick around, uh, to be in the building just adjacent to us next door in our fellowship hall. And you're more than welcome to stick around and have dinner with us or have lunch with us. Uh, we're not stick, planning to stick around for dinner, but you can have lunch with us immediately following the service. And so with that in mind, knowing that dinner's coming or lunch is coming and we're thinking through eating, and my youngest son is like the most excited. He gets excited every 
uh, every uh, quarter, and this thing rolls around with the fifth Sunday lunch, and he just thinks it's awesome. Uh, the encouragement would be for us to be like Job, who desired God's word as more important than physical sustenance, more than food. And so for some of us, we love to eat. We, we find a great satisfaction eating. It's, it is a means to aid us, and we need it to sustain us. And so as much joy as we can have in that, we want to begin to ask God to help us to have that same desire, to have that same intent as we come to his word, that we would eat it and we would be satisfied by it. And so, especially in a passage that we are so familiar with, like Noah and the flood. And so as we walk through this, I want to help us to try to do that very thing. So if you have... God's word open now uh, to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 9. I'm going to read all the way to 819. And you may think, hey, we can read on our own. Why do we do this? Um, I'll give you two quick explanations for that, very brief in, in, in the explanations. One would be to show the importance of God's word, uh, that ultimately that's what takes precedence. Uh, not my opinions, not my, uh, my outline, uh, God's word. And we need to know it. We need to hear it. Uh, and when the children of Israel had returned back to the land of promise after they were exiled, they spent large hours standing, hearing the word of God read, right? Large hours of that. And then they would send individuals out to help them make sense of what they heard. And so we need to hear it. That'd be one, uh, that for us to be able to see that. And then two, I wanted you to see my work. I want you to see where I'm pulling these things from so that ultimately you can hold me accountable, yes, and then you can ultimately glory in that, that you can then teach this to someone else, right? That's the whole point. Not that you would think my outlines were cool, but ultimately, or that they were creative or whatever, or entertaining, that ultimately we know where we can find this word, that when you're challenged by others to put the truth of God's word, you know where to find it. You've seen it on your own Bible. You can mark the notations on your Bible. Uh, you can begin to make notes to help you to be empowered to answer questions with others. That's the point why we gather. Glorify God, make disciples, so that we can leave this place and glorify God by making disciples, right? So that's our aim this morning. So that's why I want us to read it and know the text itself. So Genesis chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, the word of the Lord says, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, breadth, 50 cubits. And its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under, which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. That shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of creeping thing, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your, your household, 
for I have sent uh, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did, the, did all that the Lord commanded him. Now Noah was... 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. And the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty forty nights. And the very same day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They, every beast, they and every beast according to its kind, and all livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two, uh, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood continued forty days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high heaven, high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, and all swarming creatures that swam on the earth, and all mankind. Everything was on dry land, and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all beasts and all livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day, 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. And at the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and set, sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the water had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he set forth, sent forth the the dove out of the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, 
that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his son's wives with him. Every beast, everything, and every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to see you up front, to see you preeminent, supreme, most important in this passage. Lord, it is about you and what you are doing in our midst. And so I pray that we would see that today. And I pray it would encourage us that you see and you know and you speak and you understand, you save and you deliver, you sustain. And so, Father, I pray that you would aid us this morning. And as we study this passage, that uh, it would give us a greater understanding of who you are and of who we are, your character and your nature. And that, Lord, it would lead us to worship. It would lead us to serve. It would lead us to obey as Noah obeyed. Not because we are great people, but because you are a great God. And that you are great and we are small in comparison. And yet you remember us. And so may it lead us to be faithful. And then there are times where, Lord, we too were persecuted for faithfulness. That we too can rejoice as we've already studied. And so aid us in that this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your notes there, I want us to pick those out. We're just going to briefly go through in case, you, just to keep it in context, this was intended to be one message and we didn't quite make it. So I want to just brief recap and then we'll flip it over and hit the notes where we'll be filling in the blanks on the backside. As we walk through this, one of the things I want us to remember that we covered in detail last week, that I'm only going to cover very briefly, is this passage, this primary um, uh, personality, if you will, the main character of Genesis 6 through 9 is not Noah. The main character in this passage is God. We see Noah obeying, and we see it a couple of times in the context of this, uh, these chapters. We're walking through verse 22 of chapter 6. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. We see it again in chapter 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And then you're going to see that he obeys and he goes in. And then the Lord shuts him in. Uh, into the ark is by telling him what time this was about to happen. And then in chapter 8, verse uh, 18, Noah went out, his sons and his wife, and his sons' uh, wives with him. Uh, but all, And they basically he obeyed again. God tells him he can leave, and he leaves the ark and enters back into uh, what is going to be a new earth after post-flood, right? Uh, and so as we're walking through this, uh, you're seeing Noah respond. You're seeing Noah obey, and for that he needs to be commended. Uh, he did as God commanded, and so that's an amazing thing, and that's exactly what God desires of his children to do. It's what he desires of his creatures to do, uh, that we would give him praise by walking with him and knowing him and hearing him and obeying him. But ultimately, uh, most sermons are going to be very man-centered, and this is primarily about Noah. But when you read the text as we've read it, the main character isn't Noah. He's, he's in the story his, as much as his wife and his sons and his sons' wives and the animals, but God's the one who's doing the work here. God's the one who's establishing everything. God's the one who's going to bring judgment. God's the one who warns. God's the one who then tells him how to build the ark. God's the one who uh, warns him that the flood's about to happen. He needs to get in the ark. God's the one who brings the animals to him. God's the one who sustains him. God's the one who then allows the, the, the heavens to burst forth with its waters, that the earth would burst open with water. And so ultimately, God's the one who floods the earth. God's the one who remembers Noah. And so ultimately, you begin to see over and over and over, over through this passage that the story is about God. And yet, how many sermons have we heard where the main character is Noah? 
Now, Grammy, I don't want to take away from any man's obedience, but it's the grace of God that we obey. And so as we look at this, we need to see that because why do we do that? Why do I need to spend time leading us to see that this main story is about Noah? For the same reason I spent the same time trying to address in our elementary class when I was teaching the elementary students this morning, that the main story of David and Goliath isn't David or Goliath. It's God. God's the one who brought that victory. God's the one whose name was not going to be defiled from an uncircumcised Philistine that day. God's the one who was going to who had chosen a people, and as a result of choosing that people, was going to sustain that people throughout time. And I say all that to say this. When we elevate man to an improper place, then we sit back and we go, well, then that's David. Oh, man, that's Noah. Man, they're in the hall of faith. They're in Hebrews chapter 11. That's like all those others who are in the hall of fame of different things, Right? Here in Atlanta, we have the College Football Hall of Fame. And, man, look at all these guys. And they stand head and shoulders above everyone else because they're in the College Football Hall of Fame or the Baseball Hall of Fame or whatever you begin to look at. And so these guys are set apart, and they're so much better than us. And if you begin to buy into that, then what you begin to look at is that God can't and will not use you. And that's dangerous. That's unbiblical. God has a plan that would incorporate humanity and it requires all of us to be in it. All 12 of the apostles and beyond the apostles toward then you begin to see in the book of Acts unnamed men and unnamed women taking the gospel of different places and different locations and how God worked and used these individuals for His glory. Like John chapter 4 with a Samaritan woman. Horrible past. Sordid reputation, and yet at the same time, God used her to save an entire Samaritan village by His goodness and by His grace. And so I simply say that for us to put our eyes on God, and when we have our eyes on God, then everything else, even a a giant that's nine feet, nine inches tall, seems small to us because God seems big to us. That God could destroy the whole world and everything on it and create a new heaven and, um, and create a new earth that we'd be walking on, not... In all the aspects, clearly it's a different world that he got on the ark to when he got uh, off the ark. It was a much different world that Noah was going to be interacting with. And God spared him. And so I want us to be able to see that. And so as we walk through that, I I want us to see that this is primarily about God, not Noah. And so what do we want to see about God in this passage? Four primary things. Number one, as we talked about last week, that God sees. He sees. He knows. When we see things, we can know things, right? And we're able to, to, to gain, gain knowledge that way. But God sees everything. He knows everything. And so in this, you see at the very beginning of the passage that you're going to see that God is, uh, knows what's taking place. He sees what men are doing. And this should both trouble us and comfort us. It should trouble us when we know that God sees even the, 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 the things that we do in secret and in, that are hidden, Right? And so we, 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 that should trouble us. that We can't get away with sin. And this is exactly the point of this passage, that sin was multiplying on the face of the earth, and yet God saw it. But at the same time, it should encourage us that when we're attempting to be faithful, we're walking with God, God sees that too. And this is exactly what we see. Is got, God sees righteousness, 
As we see in verse 9, that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That doesn't mean sinless. It means blameless. means that when even when he was confronted about sin, he would repent of it and give it up. And so there's nothing that anyone could hold on to to say this was a character flaw as far as a sinful attitude, a sinful um, uh, practice in Noah's life. And so he was blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. God sees those who are being faithful. Despite the fact it might not feel very uh, successful, God sees righteousness. He sees faithfulness. And that should encourage us. That should comfort us. But there should be, there's some things that could trouble us, right? And then not only did God sees righteousness, but he sees wickedness. Verse 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth. And behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And so we talked about, number one, the external uh, or the actions that come along with that. So we, God sees the external. He sees our actions. He sees our behavior. That's what verses 11 and 12 speak of. But then we even reference back to verse 5, which we didn't, uh, we, we preached in the previous sermon. And it begin to look at that God also sees wickedness that are on the internal, that are the attitudes that we have, that are the beliefs that we carry, things that we believe about God that would be not represented by his actual character and his nature, right? God's a mean God. God's a hateful God. God's, uh, uh, he, he owes me and, and he, I deserve this or I deserve that. And so we begin to assassinate God's character when things don't go the way we think they should go. And so God saw that too. Verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6. And the Lord, the Lord saw, there it is again. He's able to see, he sees, he has sight. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So God doesn't just see our behavior. God doesn't simply see our actions and our, that things are external like we would. God sees the internal. And this was exactly the point that we were walking through with First Samuel with our, our children. Uh, and our study there was uh, all the various illustrations, whether it was Jonathan or it was Hannah or it was King David or it was King Saul. God sees the heart. And he judges not just on the actions, but on the intentions. And so in that, we see that God sees. Number two, we examined last week that God not only sees, but God speaks. And we begin to talk about why this is the primary point of the passage. It's about God. He's the main character and not Noah because Noah doesn't speak in this entire passage at all. Everything that we're going to cover in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9 to chapter 8, verse 19, Noah doesn't say a word. At least it's recorded. We do know that during that course of time, he is speaking because First Peter says he was a herald of righteousness when he was building the ark. He was preaching uh, salvation through the means of the ark, that there was a warning about judgment to come. But in this passage, the intent of the authorship is to be able to say this passage is about God, not Noah. Oh, Noah doesn't open his mouth until chapter 9, verse 24, when then he, he's already off the ark. He gets drunk with wine. His son then makes fun of him in his nakedness. And then he wakes up, and the very first thing that you see, that the very first recorded words of Noah is he curses his son. Talk about discipline, right? The importance of discipline in a home. But ultimately, this is exactly what we're seeing, that Noah doesn't speak. Why? Because the main character is not Noah. The main character is God. And the Scripture is clear to make God on display. And yet, sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon is about man. You too can be Noah. Let me give you a pep rally. We won't be Noah. When the going gets tough, right? The tough, I better get going, right? They better get after it. But most of the time they get going in the sense they flee. Because they're not really tough. And so we don't want you just to preach, you're awesome. 
want to preach God's awesome, and when we have our eyes on Him, then that's when we gain victory. Is it not? Because we know the one, God is the one who ultimately holds the victory in His hand. And so ultimately, God begins to speak, and I begin to challenge you and warn you about how we view hearing God speak today. And many, many people are claiming that they hear God and that God speaks to them, and it's always come some kind of mystical way. And I want to just guard against that, that here, as we saw in the passage, if you'll look at verse 13, and God said to Noah, and you see an interesting thing here as it's being recorded to us in our English versions, there's a quotation marks, right? Quoting God. And so in this, I want us to be able to see that because this is intentional for us because ultimately God spoke and God spoke audibly. These weren't just promptings. God spoke. This is why we have direct quotes from God, from heaven. And so Noah's the author here of this. God also spoke to Noah verbally. You don't believe that's true. You need to be reading the book of Exodus. You need to be reading through the scriptures. And ultimately, the heavens shook. The mountains at Mount Sinai shook as a result of the fact that God's presence being there, God's speaking to Moses. And so as we see this, these are direct words and direct quotations. So how does God then speak to us today? Is it audible voices? No, he speaks to us through his recorded word. The spirit of God that indwells the child of God, right? As a born-again believer, enables us to illuminates for us the scripture that we can understand the scripture and that ultimately through that, God's word then gives us instruction, right? This is how we hear from God today. It's how he speaks to us today. That doesn't mean the, Bible, the Holy Spirit doesn't work to, in our lives in real time, bringing scripture to remembrance and and convicting us of sin and a variety of other things that the Spirit would do in real time. But ultimately, as it relates to hearing from God, we hear from God from His Word that's been recorded to us. And this is super important to us because ultimately, this is how we know we've heard from God. And there's some severe warnings, Old Testament and New Testament alike, about adding to or even taking away from God's words. And so we want to be mindful of that. So what did God speak? We talk about God speaks. What did He speak? Number one, He, was, he warns, as we saw last week, and behold... Uh, and God said to Noah, verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So he warns. And what is he warning about judging the earth? That there's going to be judgment upon the earth. He's going to make an end of the earth. And so judgment is about to come. Not only does he warns, he instructs. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. And we talked about that word ark. It's only used a, uh, a few times in the Old Testament. Here and in one other location in Exodus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. The word ark, as far as it references the ark of the covenant... Uh, you think, man, the ark's used a ton. That's not the same word. And so uh, this particular word here, taba, is the word that means box or chest. And so it's just this really large rectangular box. And so ultimately, it wasn't intended to be cutting through the water as we'd see boats today. That uh, wasn't the intent behind it. Uh, it wasn't trying to gain speed or go somewhere. It didn't have sails so it could be carried by the wind. It was intended to preserve people so they wouldn't die. The same reason the word's used and, and it's translated a basket in Exodus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, as it references Moses. Once again, Moses is being brought into picture here because it's the same word that's going to be used there. His parents made an ark, right? Made a, it's described as a basket, made a box or a chest, and they put him in for the same purpose. Not, not so he could sail through the, the river, right? And then sail exactly to Pharaoh's palace. It was just to preserve him, right? To keep him afloat. And the intent wasn't for him to make great time. And so the same way this box or chest was made out of gopher wood. We don't know what gopher wood is. Um, people make all kinds of claims to it. We don't know exactly what type of wood that is. But it was a uh, type of wood that God intended for Moses to use. He used it to build a box. And so he gives him instructions. Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and out with pitch. That's to be able to seal it, make it waterproof. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. That would be 450 feet. Its breadth 
would be 50 cubits, which would be 75 feet, and its height, 30 cubits, which would be 45 feet. That ratio between length to width is 6 to 1. It's the same ratio that's been used in, in ocean liners even to this day, 6 to 1, 8 to 1. Typical uh, ratios that are most often used as far as length to width. And so 450 to 75 would be that 6 to 1 ratio. And this is going to be the greatest boat built until the 18th century. That gives you any perspective of what God was doing in the life of Noah. And so how did Noah know to do that? God gave him instructions on how to do it. Make a roof for the ark, finish it with a cubit to, uh, above, and set the door in the side of the ark, make it with a lower, second, and third decks. And so he's given instructions, warns uh, about the ju- judging, uh, coming judgment. He instructs about building an ark. He describes or explains about the flooding of the earth. How is he going to bring judgment? Verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. That's important. Everything that's on the earth shall die. And we'll explain that in just a moment. But he describes, he explains how this judgment is going to come. And then he expresses grace. He's saving a few from this judgment. But, verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark. So he's going to establish a covenant with him. That speaks of expressing grace spiritually. A covenant that he's going to make with Noah and with Noah's wife and with Noah's sons and Noah's sons' wives. And so he's going to have a spiritual covenant with him that he is making with him. And you shall come into my ark. And so not only is he expressing grace spiritually, but he's expressing grace physically. And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you, and every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. He's, so he's saving him spiritually, as we would talk about salvation. He's also saving him physically from physical harm, physical death, because not just him, but all that were being in the ark safe with him, including animals. And they should be male and female, of birds to their kinds, and of animals according to their kinds, of creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into, and into you to keep them alive. And take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for them. And so God's speaking. And we're going to see God continue to speak in, in, verse, in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. You're going to see three major uh, uh, points of discussion. And then we'll see a fourth one uh, that we'll cover next week that begins with the Abrahamic covenant. And, and so you're going to have four long speeches, if you will, before Noah ever opens his mouth in recorded history as far as it's recorded to us in the Bible. And so it just proves the point this is about God, not about Noah, and that God speaks. And why does God speak? Because God wants us to know his character. He hates sin. He is going to punish sin. And he wants to warn that you can be freed from that punishment. But you have to know God and you have to obey God. Not obey God in the means to be saved, but when you know God, he will, he will give you commands on how you can be saved, Right? Like in our day, God warns us about the coming judgment, and then he gives us commands. What's one of the commands that we need to yield to? Repent and believe, right? We don't earn our salvation. We simply turn from sin. We repent, and we believe in Christ, and therefore we are saved because of our faith, not because of our works. But there are commands that we need to obey, and some of those commands are repent and believe. And so the same way Noah was saved by obeying God's commands, and that's where we find the end of chapter 6 is exactly that. Noah, verse 22, did this. He did all that God commanded him. Why? Because he had faith. He believed God. Despite the fact he'd never seen a boat this big, despite the fact he'd never seen rain, he clearly hadn't seen a flood, what was going to be described here, but ultimately he did as God commanded him. That takes us then to everything that's going to be new in our sermon, right? That was all recap from last week. So if you weren't here, God bless you. You're all caught up with those guys. And they're like, if you could have done it that quick this week, why didn't you do it that quick last week? Because... 
I knew you already heard the sermon, so it's good, all right? So don't be judging me. All right, so, so number three, what God sees. Well, we saw that God, uh, God speaks, and then today we're going to see God saves. God saves. And so that's exactly the whole point of chapter 7. If we're walking through this passage, we want to just kind of map out chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8. I'll, I can give you a, a, just kind of a, a picture. Number, chapter 6, 1 through 8, you're seeing perversion. Chapter 6, 1 through 8, you see perversion. And ultimately, this, the land was perverted, right? And you begin to see as man began to multiply on the face of the earth, uh, they began to then have uh, sin begin to increase and man began to increase. And as we saw in chapter 6, verse 5, the ultimate that God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And so you see perver- perversion. Then chapter 6, verses 9, uh, through the end of chapter 6, verses 9 through 22, you see preparation. God is preparing Noah. God is in speaking to Noah. He's instructing Noah, preparing him for coming judgment, warning him about what's about to take place. And then all of chapter 7, you're going to see punishment. God punishes the earth. Now, at the same time as God punishes the earth, he's, he's going to pre- be preserving, right, Noah and his family, right? He pre- preserves him because why? otherwise everything would be dead and everything would have died. But Noah, uh, God saves Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. And so it, he sees punishment, chapter 7, and then... Um, uh, preservation, chapter 8. So that's how you kind of begin to see this passage unfold. Perversion, uh, preparation, punishment, and then preservation as we walk through this. And so in chapter 7, you're going to see God unleashing his punishment on the earth. And at the same time, as he does that, he saves. This is the same picture, same imagery of the cross, is it not? On Calvary, God punished his son, Right? So that at the same time he could save a people. Their sins could be cleansed and they could be forgiven of their sins because Christ's perfect fulfillment of the word of God, the law of God, the commands of God, never a bad thought, never a bad intention, as God's judging both the actions and the attitudes, the beliefs and the behaviors, right? As he's seeing this, he's he got the external and the internal. All of that in Christ was perfect. He obeyed God fully. And so that righteousness was is was complete, was fulfilled. The righteousness of the law, the requirement, righteous requirements of the law was fulfilled in Christ. And yet, even though he fulfilled the righteous all the requirements of the law and therefore didn't need to die, he died so that what? That could be imputed to us and he could take our sin. And so then he dies in our stead. And so in the same way, the wrath of God that was poured out through a flood, those inside the ark were safe. In the same way, the wrath of God that was poured on Christ, everyone who is now in Christ is the, the New Testament uh, um, synonym for salvation. And all who are in Christ are saved from the judgment of God. This is important to us to see this. So as God punishes, he also saves. As his wrath is being display, displayed, so is his mercy and grace. And this is the whole point of chapter 7. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Meaning, I've granted you righteousness. How did God grant him righteousness? Well, God was speaking with him. We just blow past these things. Noah walked with whom? God. So therefore, God was pursuing Noah. No one can get to God unless God comes to him. And so God was gracious to stoop to the level of mankind and communicate to mankind, and he did. And Noah walked with God. And so as a result of this, God granted him righteousness because no unrighteous person can be in God's sight without God pardoning him first. The whole point of Isaiah, when he sees the vision of heaven and 
the angels take the tongs from the fire from the burning of the altar and the incense and then places it to cleanse his sinful tongue and so therefore he could be in God's presence. And so this is exactly the point that Noah was granted righteousness from God. So he tells Noah, you need to go into the ark. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals. Now this is interesting. This is the first time you're going to see clean and unclean. This is hearkening back to uh, um, what Tim taught on earlier about Cain and Abel and how the Mosaic law was being fulfilled here despite the fact it was pre-Mosaic law, right? Mosaic law would be the law given to Moses, the Ten Commandments, and so on and so forth. All the Levitical requirements that would be taken uh, as uh, would be uh, a necessity, Levitical being that of the Levites, which would be the priests of that particular time. And so it's how we were gonna, man was going to interact with God when they were sinful. Uh, God prescribed laws. And there were uh, ceremonial laws, and there were sacrificial laws, and there were civil laws. And so all that we begin to see as the law of God was being given to man, you're seeing aspects of this even prior to the law being given. And so you're seeing now clean and unclean animals. What was the point? So he's supposed to be taking pairs of every animal. But this is interesting. It says, verse 2, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. So he's telling them you need to bring seven of the clean animals, seven pairs, male and female, and then only a pair of the unclean animals, male and female. Why is that the case? Why is that the case? Well, because if you fast forward, Genesis chapter 8, when he gets off the ark, one of the first things that Noah does, as far as it's recorded that Noah does, verse 20 of chapter 8, we won't be there until next week, but I'll just read this portion to you. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of the man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So I'm never going to destroy it again with the flood like I did just then. So the point is, if he had only taken one pair and then he kills one, either male or female, in an offering to God, that species is gone. You catch me? So he couldn't just take two of each and that was it because there was going to be a sacrificial system and he was going to be giving God praise for God's goodness and grace to him. And so he builds an offer for praise to God. And so if he kills these animals that he was going to be sacrificing, as they were doing prior to this, is the whole point of Cain and Abel, right? Sacrifice was acceptable, one was not acceptable. One was, uh, was, was esteemed and one was not esteemed. And so there was a sacrificial system that began all the way back, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve had sinned and needed clothing that was fit for them, that suited for them, and God killed an animal in their stead. Sacrificial atonement, if you will, being atoned for sacrificially, substitutionary atonement in your place so that you don't have to be you don't have to die. Something can cover you of your sin. This is a big picture of the, of the Bible all throughout, right? And so this is exactly what you're going to begin seeing, that an offering was given to the Lord. And, so, and then with this, I'll just give a couple other passages. Why the clean and the unclean? Well, if it's going to be, be sacrificed, we see that, and we're going to see the sacrificial system coming, coming. But the clean and unclean, why are they there? I'll give you two passages you can write down. Um, uh, for you to be able to look at, and then we'll, I'll just explain it to you quickly. We won't take a ton of time. Leviticus chapter 11, the whole chapter, Leviticus chapter 11, but 1 and 2, and then again 46 and 47. It's going to talk about clean and unclean animals, and they're primarily in Leviticus talking about animals that you can eat. Up to this point, everyone's a vegetarian, right? Or supposed to be a vegetarian. God had commanded they're supposed to eat of the seed and the 
plant and so not of animals. After this, God's going to give permission to eat animals, and he's going to tell them which ones to eat and which ones not to eat. And so in Leviticus, he's going to walk through these clean and unclean animals as far as what they're supposed to eat. Uh, and so as we're walking the same thing in uh, uh, Leviticus chapter 20, verses 22 through 26, you're going to see the same uh, aspect of this clean and unclean animals they're supposed to eat and not eat. Now, you begin to think, and people get all bent out of shape about clean and unclean and which ones you're supposed to eat, and uh, these are bottom feeders, and, and these may be healthy or more unhealthy. That may have aspects of truth. I'm not saying that's not, but that is not the primary point. It is not the primary point. Leviticus, if you read it, will tell you. Deuteronomy, if you read it, will tell you. Uh, it is not the primary point. God wanted them to eat clean and unclean animals to bring, give them a distinction from other nations. He wanted them to be different so the nations would look at them and see that they're different. This was the point. How to make distinctions in the world that you would be distinct in the world why, uh, uh, in the world, and not be of the world. It's the same way God desires for us to make distinctions in this world today, that we'd be set apart, that we'd be consecrated for his use and pur- pur- purposefulness. And so this is exactly what the point is of this. And so these clean and unclean animals, but what they're eating and not supposed to eat, isn't primarily about health. How do we know that? Well, in the book of Acts, chapter 10, you're going to see imagery there uh, of, of uh, sheep coming down from heaven with all the animals clean and unclean, and God says, kill, rise, or rise, kill, and eat. And then Peter's like, whoa, I'm not doing that. Never has something common touched my lips. And God says, don't call common, uh, 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 common or unclean what I call clean. And then tells him three times he sees that vision, kill, arise, kill, and eat. And so the picture there was imagery uh, that he, uh, about the separation that was going to be from them being distinct in the world to the Gentiles, right? That was the whole point. Be distinct, be different than the world, be distinct and different from the Gentiles because you're my people. Now he's telling him, you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to eat of only clean animals. You think, well, what was the point? Because God had sent a vision to uh, some Gentiles that were about to show up at his house at that very moment we was having that vision at the, on top of the Tanner's house. And he was now no longer needed to be separate from the Gentiles. He needed to be taking that gospel to the Gentiles. That's what Acts chapter 10 is all about. And so we want us to be able to see here this clean and unclean already being there that for a sacrificial system, we want to see why it's important in this text. If you kill all the animals... Uh, already you're not going to have those animal species are going to be gone, so it's just practical. But then spiritually, it was going to be an intent to show them when they get off the boat, when they get off the ark, they were going to be eating meat, and he wanted to begin to bring that distinction immediately, intentionally from the beginning about what they can and cannot eat to bring distinction about who will be followers of God and who would not be, so you can be distinct in the world. So you begin to see that. And then verse uh, 4 for in seven days, so why do you need to get on the boat? Why do the animals need to get on the boat? Why do you need to bring seven of these particular pairs of these clean animals versus unclean animals? For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights. Now we're going to see it's going, this flood's coming. How's the flood going to come? It's going to rain 40 days and 40 nights. No mention of rain up to this point. I don't know if it's ever rained up to this point. Um, probably has not. The Bible had spoke in Genesis chapter uh, 2 that God sent a mist up from the ground. It actually, water came up from the ground. Uh, and watered the earth, and so it probably was no rain at that particular time, and so it could be the very first time they're seeing rain, and God's going to now not just let them see it, going to see it for a long time. I know here, if it rains, for th- we can be like, God, we need rain, God, we need rain, and it rains for like three days in a row, and we're like, all right, I'm done with the rain, God, you can stop the rain now, we've got enough, as if we know better than God, right? And so ultimately, they probably hadn't seen rain, and now they're about to see rain for 40 days and 40 nights, and so he says, I'm going to send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I've made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Now, as we're reading through this, I want you to see worldwide flood. Worldwide flood. 
You just listen to the language. It doesn't sound like it's a local flood. And this is how people describe it. Oh, there is a flood, but it was just local there to the, the valley of Mesopotamia. And so it's just that region where Noah was, and it was just a local flood. But as you read this language, why would you need to take, build an ark that big? If you begin to think about that, why the, why the construction of something so big, the outfitting of something so big, the populating of an ark that large, that would be absurd if it was only a localized flood. It'd be simpler just to be like, hey, why don't you just leave the Mesopotamian area? Why don't you just go somewhere else? You've got time. The whole time you were using to build the ark, over 100 years to build the ark, you could just travel somewhere else if there was going to be a flood. Right? And it doesn't make any sense. And clearly, this is what he had told uh, Lot when he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Just leave. Right? Leave. I'm going to destroy these regions, these cities, but I'm not going to destroy everything and everywhere. And so just leave. But that shows there's going to be a global flood, right? And then the language is being used. And as we read through here, I want you to just keep that in the backdrop of your mind. As he says here, I will, make, I, uh, I will destroy every living thing that I've made. I will blot it out from the face of the ground. Everything that's not going to be an ark. And you're going to see that, especially toward the end of chapter 7 as we read through that, that it was a worldwide flood. And so you, you begin to think through this process of how this works and how, what God designed about why this would be uh, a worldwide flood. And if it was localized, and God promises, as we read earlier, that God, we read earlier in Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 and following, uh, 20 through 22, God promises he will never dis- uh, send a flood like that again. If it's localized, then what does that tell us? God lied. Right? God lied. Because there's been tsunamis that have flooded cities like Phuket, Thailand, around Christmas. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands were dead. Kids, infants, women, men, animals, flooded, killed. Right? So then if it was a localized flood, God's a liar. And so might as well not believe anything about the Bible because God promised he would never do it again like that. Localized flood, then God lies. And might as well just throw out the whole Bible. So we need to understand it as it is and not try to make sense of everything in our present world. We need to trust what God's word says because when you start playing with scripture and saying things that the Bible doesn't say it says, you're going to end up making God a liar. And he doesn't like that, right? When God speaks, you want to say what God says he says and don't don't take away from what God says he says because God has a purpose in the things that he says and the things that he does. And so he tells him to get on the boat or the ark because he's about to get on the box, the chest, because he's about to destroy the earth, and in seven days, this is going to come. Once again, preparation. you got seven days to get this right. I guarantee those last seven days were busy, and I guarantee those seven days were he was talking a lot. Guys, this thing I've been building, it's almost time. Get in. It's time for this thing to happen. If there's any warnings, you want to be able to come on. Uh, if you gave any warnings in those last seven days, uh, it, it was intense because he knew that it was about time for uh, God to destroy everything. And so then what verse 5 says, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. And then it gives more insight into what happened here. Verse six about how God saved. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters, the flood of the waters came upon the earth. So we know that ultimately he didn't even have his children until after he was 500. We saw that in chapter five, verse 22, after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we know the boys are less than uh, 100 years old or right at it. Uh, at least one of them may have been one uh, right at that 100 years age, uh, but all of them were younger than that. Uh, because he didn't father them to after he was 500, and now it's 600, and he's getting on the boat, right? He's getting on the ark. 
And so and Noah and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of flood of the clean animals. Now, again, he's given the, the aspect of the animals two by two, went into the ark as, Noah, as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, and the heavens were opened. And so verse 10 tells us then how it happens. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth and the 600 year of Noah's life. And the second month on the 27th day of the month. So it gets very specific, right? Second month. 27th day of the month is when this is going to happen. And you're going to see other references today, so we'll walk through that. I'll try to help teach you uh, or show you how much time has been uh, transpiring as we go through this process, right? So 7th month, 27th uh, day of the month. And this, how does it happen? On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. And this is what people blow by every time. Water was under the earth, in the earth, as much as it was above the earth. You see that? The waters of the great deep burst forth. And this is where many believe that the major mountain ranges like uh, that we see in this day, how the mountain ranges run and why they uh, look the way they look today, the height of those and the valleys that we have, the Grand Canyon and how it was made, is all a result of these great deeps bursting forth and the continents being made. And so ultimately the planet looked differently, right? The continents weren't designed the way they are today, all because of how this great deep bursting forth. And so water's coming up from the earth. And so imagine water gushing forth like, you see, oh, faithful, but much bigger in scale, right? We see it happening. There's water in the earth. Pressure builds up. Explosion. And the geyser of oh, faithful. Well, then this is the same, but much, much greater detail because all the water we see on our planet was, was now covered there. And so you're seeing water coming up, busting forth from the great deep. And, verse 11 tells us, and windows of heavens were opened. So there's the rain coming down for 40 days and 40 nights. So you got water coming up. And water coming down at the same time, and it was torrential. And rain fell, rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and, his, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to its kind, every winged creature uh, went to come. The very same day, that's when God sent the rain. Right, verse fifteen. They went into the ark with Noah, two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Right? So this is the whole point that we're beginning to see that now they're inside, they're being protected, because on that day, the same day they went in and God closes them in, God told them to go in and, and shut the door. And so at that particular time, then God's going to burst forth. And water's coming from up, from, uh, from under them, and water's coming from above, to, above them. And it says, then the waters continued 40 days on the earth. The waters, now listen to the language here, it's going to continue. It continues, the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. All the mountains were covered. Now, this is important for us to see that the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. So the highest mountains, they were covered 15 cubits deep. So what is that? 22 and a half feet, almost 23 feet above the highest mountains. Now, what does that tell you about? Well, if you know the height of mountains, that's pretty large. But it's going to land here on one particular mountain range. If you go to chapter 8, verse 4, I just want to share something with you. You can kind of tie those together, maybe make some notes. Look at chapter 4, I mean chapter 8, verse 4. Uh, end of chapter 8, verse 3, it says, At the end of 150 days, the waters abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, so that's going to be five months in. Uh, so on the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, it went in on the second month, 
and on the 17th day of the month. So now we're five months or 150 days from that day. The ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The mountains of Ararat. So listen, Mount, Mount Ararat, 17,000 feet tall. 17,000 feet. So you now you've got the waters covering 22 and a half feet above this. Right? You need an ark. Right? You need some protection from that. Um, it was amazing, just the way, the means by which God then destroyed all living things. And so he shuts them in, and then the rain began to fall. The waters burst forth, and it covered it up the earth, even the mountains, up to the mountains, 22 and a half feet above the mountains. Which, once again, if it was just a localized flood, how's it going to flood the mountains over 22 and a half feet? It would spill over the mountains, and it would dissipate, would it not? It would just begin to traverse other locations. And so 22 and a half feet above the mountains? So either God's a liar and this word's not true or it can't be a localized flood. And as you continue to see here, as the waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 feet, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. So everything that's going to be on land is going to die. And then from 22, everything, verse 22, on dry land and whose nostril was the breath of life died. That couldn't be true if it's just a localized flood. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the, of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, wiped away, notated, wiped out, gone. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days or five months. Right? That's how long it endured that process. So 40 days, 40 nights it rains, but then <clears throat> here you have... Five months where the water is maintaining, is being retained there. Uh, and so all this passage is what? It's talking about God's punishment. But in the midst of God's punishment, before we just think God's this mean, heinous God, God saves, right? He spares. Everyone? No. God knows the intentions of our heart. God is the one who graces. God gives us opportunity to respond, as he did with Noah. They're able to get on the ark, and others chose not to do so. And ultimately, God sends a worldwide flood. And in that punishment... Of, of sin, God saves. And the last thing we see is not only that God sees, God speaks, God saves, God shows grace and compassion. Grace and compassion. I love verse 8. There's various times in the Bible it uses this conjunction, but God. You see it again in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and it talks about how wicked man is. And then it gets to like verse 4, and it says, but God who is rich in mercy. And then begins to walk through the gospel. Same picture here. God just sent judgment upon the earth, killed every living creature that was not in the ark besides the uh, animals that are already in the ocean that could survive. And some of them, I'm confident, perished. But nonetheless, they were uh, able to survive because they're uh, water creatures. But ultimately, everything that was on the land, land animals and, and humans, all perished. And so it says, but God remembered Noah and all beasts and livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. What does that tell us? Even in the midst of God's judgment, God shows mercy and compassion. God remembers you. So when you're going through a difficult time, you're going through a difficult trial, and you're trying to be faithful, and it seems like everything isn't going well, and even at the point where you're trying to honor the Lord and be faithful in your in enduring, maybe uh, uh, obedience to God's word, but maybe persecution from without, and you just think, man, this storm is never going to end. I've been faithful. I'm, I've tried to be faithful. I know I'm not sinless, but I'm trying to be blameless in this generation. I'm trying to walk with you. I'm trying to be a, a man who uh, uh, lives as his standing is. I'm righteous before you because of Christ's atonement for me. I'm righteous because of your spirit that resides in me. 
but I'm trying to live that way. And God, it seems really hard. Remember that God remembers. Now, this is important because why? It's not like he had this major high rise. He had this major corporation. He's the leader of the greatest known country of the world. He's the leader of the superpower. He's the, the president of the United States of America. People should take notice of me. Have towers named after me. No, not at all. God remembers because he's good. God remembers because he's gracious. God remembers because he's compassionate. Quite the opposite. Even though that boat was big, on the scope of the whole planet, it's a speck. Imagine zooming out to Google Earth and you're out in outer space. And you try to find a boat even this large on our planet. It'd be pretty difficult to do, wouldn't it? Because why? Small in comparison. Encouragement for that is God knows where you're at. He sees you, as we talked about before. That should comfort us. Not only does he see wickedness, he sees righteousness. He knows where you're at. He knows your attempt and your desires to be faithful. And so in this, he sees. And so then God remembered with a plan. All right, this time is up. Judgment has been sufficient. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. And the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed, almost like turning off a faucet. God says, that's it. Enough. Right? The technology and power we have, right? It's so eerily... Uh, Similar to God, but yet so much more simple than the power and the, 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 uh, the sheer power of God. It's simple and it's similar in the fact that we can say, Alexa, turn on the water. Alexa, shut the front door. Probably not shut the front door, but lock the front door, right? Alexa, play whatever. The spoken word, things can happen. But it's limited, is it not? The power goes out, Alexa has no power. But God, with a spoken word, shuts the waters of the deep, closes off the windows to the heavens so that man doesn't continue to suffer, right? The waters, heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. It ended 150 days, that's your five months. The waters had abated in the seventh month. On the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. There's more than one. There is a Mount Ararat, but there's a mountain range there. Um, uh, through that whole region, there's mountain ranges, and it's the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continue to abate until the 10th month. So that's the eight months in. The 10th month and the, and the 10th month on the first day of the month, the mountains of the top were seen. So eight months in, they're finally seeing the tops of the mountains. The boat had come to rest, but the boat's 450 feet long, 75 feet tall. So you still got 75 feet before, even though it's resting on the mountains, before you can actually see the tops of the mountains. And so the fifth month comes to rest on the mountains. The eighth month... Uh, after the waters had, had uh, the, the word had, world had been flooded, after the eighth month, they begin to see the tops of the mountains, and he begins to send forth the doves, right, or the raven, and then the doves, trying to determine how long he's going to be here and how much longer it's going to take before he can get off uh, the ark. Verse twelve. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. And in the six hundredth, uh, in the six hundred and first year, so now we've been uh, over a hundred, over an entire year, he's been in the ark. In the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from, the faith, from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And God said to him, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your, your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out every living thing that is with you of all the flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth. And then be, be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Same instructions he gave Adam and Eve, right? Because why? 
going to repopulate the planet. The same command that was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, is now the instructions that's given to Noah and his wife and his sons and the sons' wives. They're to populate the earth, not just them, but the animals of the land. And so verse 18, so Noah went out, he obeyed, and his sons and his wife and his wife's sons with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. All right, so what's our takeaway? The big so what? Why do we care uh, about this and why is it important? Well, we should always care about God's word. It helps us teach us about his character. It teaches us about his nature. As we're walking through this, the Bible uses this as, uh, for a variety of purposes. One, it teaches us that God hates sin. He hates it. He sees it. He's aware of it. But he's gracious and he's compassionate and he's merciful, right? Merciful to us. He could wipe out every sin, which would include you and I. But he does not. He's gracious to us. And so God hates sin. Number two, God's going to punish sin. He's, the evildoer will be punished. And so either we are in Christ, as Noah was in the ark and was spared by the, the waters of judgment, right? The waters is what brought judgment, not salvation. It was through the ark that you were saved. But ultimately, the waters brought sal- uh, didn't bring salvation. The ark brought salvation. The waters brought judgment. Why even you're interpreting 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, the baptism now saves you. You need to be careful. Baptism wasn't what saved you, even though it harkens back to the ark. Because why? The waters was what killed everybody. The ark's what saved, right? And so the picture there isn't that baptism is going to be what saves you in that sense. It's ultimately being baptized in Christ. Being like Noah was in the ark. We're in Christ and we're being saved from the water. And so it's the same point here. Judgment wasn't the water that gave the cleansing. Judgment was, uh, the water was the judgment. And so ultimately it's the ark that provided the salvation. But so God's going to judge. He's not going to turn a blind eye to sin. And then what takeaway from us? Well, I mean, I get it. God moved, God acted, and God uh, judged sin at that particular time. How do we still apply it to our lives today? Great, great question. And uh, Peter already answered that question for us. This is what it says here. Second Peter, as he's writing this letter to them, he says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter, so watch, hence 2 Peter, while I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up, uh, uh, stirring, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminders. I want to stir something up, something you already know. I'm going to remind you. So same thing. I already know, you know the story. As a pastor, I'm reading and preaching this text to help remind you that you should remember the predictions of the Holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through, through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. You think there's scoffers in our day with some scoffing? Absolutely there is. They will say, where is the promise of Christ coming? You Christians, you say Christ is coming back. Where is he? Where is Christ? I haven't seen Christ. Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You know what? People are born, people live, people die. They're given in marriage and they're and they, uh, married and they're having children and they're given in marriage and married and having children. And it's, everything is acting the same way it was from creation. God's not real. This isn't true. Nothing's going to happen. We should just cast off all restraint, all morality, all religion. We're all like John Lennon and imagine where there was no religion. It's easy if you try. Imagine, right? That song by John Lennon, the Beatles. Imagine. There's no heaven. There's no hell. We'd just be a bunch of people that would just love one another. There's no, this is, let's just cast off all restraint because why? Everything's the same as it's been from the beginning. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, verse 5, for they deliberately overlook this fact. 
deliberately are overlooking this fact. It's why they don't want to believe in a worldwide flood. That the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same words, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It's, God's going to send another judgment as severe and even more so than the flood on the earth. And it's going to be with fire. And he's going to destroy the heavens and the earth. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what does that communicate to us? We shouldn't live as if this world's it. We shouldn't get caught up in all the stuff that you have on your calendar for this week. We should live with an eternal mindset that God that destroyed the earth through water will destroy this earth again through fire. And he's left us here to be like Noah, righteous men and women, blameless in our generation that walk with God. Because why? We know his word. He's spoken to us. And he speaks to this day. He's speaking to us now. Repent of sin. Because why? God sees God has spoken, God will save, and God will show compassion and mercy if we trust him like Noah did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. I thank you for reminders that the world isn't as it's always been. There was a new earth that was formed after Noah got off the, off the ark that you had formed, and it was going to be a different planet that he would be living on. And Lord, that it was going to get wicked again, and it was going to need a savior, this seed that was spoken of in Genesis 3.15 that would destroy the serpent, that would crush his head even though it bruised his heel. And we know that was Christ fulfilling that prophecy that he was, his heel was bruised. Yes, he died, but only for three days. And he rose again, conquering death, hell, and the grave, making payment for sin and sinners that all who would turn from their sin, repent and believe, and come into the ark of salvation, which is himself would be saved from the coming wrath. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see this type, this foreshadowing in the life of Noah, that see that this was, we need to get in the ark of Christ, be preserved from your coming judgment on sin and sinners. And, Lord, how serious that is, and that today we should not harden our hearts, but we should turn from our sin and place our faith and trust in you. Just teach this to our children as those remembrance stones, as Tim alluded to earlier that we would continue to look at what you've done in the past and how you've brought salvation in the past so that we could see salvation in the present. And that, Lord, we would not only warn our children but our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates and our friends and our family of a coming judgment. And that, Lord, if there's any here who never been saved, that today they would turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ, the one true living God. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.